0: The thing that matters most to us is our connection to other people, and while we don't talk about that perhaps in the workplace, we don't certainly don't talk about when it doesn't go well, uh, except we go home or we go to our therapist or our coach. But the reality is that that's what's really making it's the biggest driver of stress or wellness or well-being and, and creativity is whether we feel safely connected to others. So. We're trying to bring this into some kind of accessible, usable business discourse, right? The whole idea of boundless leadership in a way is giving us a language and a way of working with the inner domain of our inside job of leading ourselves and others.
1: Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the GLOW podcast. When you think of a leader who comes to mind, Most people might think of someone who is a boss, maybe someone who doesn't take no for an answer, or maybe someone whose leadership style creates a culture that runs on stress, fear, and drama. Well, thankfully, the concept of leadership is changing. Leaders are discovering healthier and more effective ways of connecting in the work environment, and more and more people are looking to work with companies that are intentional about creating and investing in the internal structures that support more conscious ways of behaving and operating as teams. Dr. Joe Loitzo is the co-author, along with Elazar Aslan, of a new book called Boundless Leadership. Together they examine leadership from the inside out, first asking leaders to work with our own nervous systems, our interior lives, to ultimately help us become more creative, embodied and compassionate leaders. As many of us have experienced both within ourselves and with others, traditional methods of leadership have tended to run on stress and assumptions about stress. But Joe reminds us that we can pivot to a kind of leadership that focuses on co-creating a psychologically safe and constructive environment. So far this year on The Globe Podcast, we've had conversations about self-care, resilience, and doing the work to be better humans. Uh, But this episode marks the first time we're bringing these ideas into the workplace and having a look at how boundless leadership can help us expand our idea of ourselves as co-workers, as teammates. I first read Fred Kaufman's book, Conscious Business, back in 2009 and have ever since been interested in this work. I love this topic because I find leadership to be a never ending inward journey of improving my own interior life and learning from my mistakes and successes as we co-create meaningful work and meaningful relationships. I see myself as a never ending work in progress with always lots to learn. And so I'm grateful for people like Joe and Elazar and many others that are doing this kind of work that say, 10 years ago, maybe plus or minus a few years, uh, was truly considered weird and fringe and not appropriate for the workplace. I'm grateful for them. Uh, They are the helpful guides we can all learn from to help us together navigate our way to healthier work environments. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joe Loitzo. Dr. Loitzo, it's so wonderful to be here with you today. Thank you for coming on.
0: Eric, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm
1: excited to dive in. Yeah, me too. So you and Elazar Aslan have a book coming out on December 21st. You can pre-order it now and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. It's called Boundless Leadership, The Breakthrough Method to Realize Your Vision, Empower Others, and Ignite Positive Change. Thank you so much for the advanced copy. It was incredibly helpful to read it before this. It's, uh, what, 250 pages of, of a lot of information. It's, it's dense. I got through it in about two weeks, but I recommend people spend more time than that because each, not every chapter, but most chapters end with a practice and there's just a lot in there. And yeah, I just so much enjoyed being with it. Uh, over that time period and you know, a book like this, even though it has the word leadership in the title, it's truly for everyone. It's self-leadership. You don't need to be a manager or founder. If you're a human and you you interact with other humans, uh, and you interact with our planet, this is for you, uh, if you're invested in or interested in this never ending process of being a better human. And it's something that you and Elazar have mapped out and taught over the past 12 years together. And I know we'll get into some of the specific critical skills and competencies, but I just wanna say one point before we turn it over to you. And and that's just a brief note about this work in terms of the work environment. It is just so clear that what you've written about and what we'll discuss today, that this is the future. Like we're already starting to see it happen more and more uh, people, companies out there want to work with people and companies that are scaling and operationalizing this way of being with each other. So it's just so exciting. And I'm grateful the two of you wrote this book. And I know you have a program that supports the material in this book, and we can get into that towards the end of our conversation. So I guess as a starting point, uh, if you want to comment on anything I said, um, or why a book on leadership, and uh, maybe share a bit of your background with us.
0: Okay great thanks Derek and so glad you've I can hear that you've uh, visited with boundless leadership and I'm glad you've enjoyed your journey thus far um, you know, I'm a psychiatrist by, by training. I mostly do psychotherapy, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, I work a lot with people around their work lives. Of course, we spend so much time at work. Um, and, and one of the key methods that I've learned to help people access potential, overcome obstacles, build resilience, and so on is in the meditative approaches, the contemplative approaches. So, in terms of my partnership with Elazar, um, we met after he read a uh, uh, a uh, blog I was doing on a tricycle, uh, a tricycle magazine for a while on the science of enlightenment. <laughs> um, really, just looking at our potential. When I talk about enlightenment, really talking about our full human potential. And uh, and he, of course, brings a more conventional business background, um, Wharton trained and so on, and uh, um, had been moving toward being an executive coach. And so he and I, um, you know, uh, sort of overlapped around the area of of power of contemplative practice to really uh, help people transform. Um, So this is really what the book is about, is if you. You know I, I love that you instantly got that this is for everyone because our take really is that the world is changing so fast and in so many converging ways that we can't it is one leader isn't enough, you know, anywhere. We all need to be have a, a larger sense of the whole. And in fact, I think this is something that really thinking about your own full agency as a human, your own contribution, your potential, your power to impact your life and others is something that we don't do enough of in our modern culture, in any discipline, whether that be in, in healthcare uh, or in business. So uh, so we really felt this was a time when the world needed a different approach to how uh, each of us can uh, be more of a leader, empower ourselves to be more of a leader for ourselves, but also uh, bring uh, a whole new way of being, as you suggest, to our interactions with others, our work life, our community, maybe uh, social engagement. Um, that's that's our our hope.
1: To know where we're going, I guess it helps to know from where we've come. You mentioned a you know, conventional approach you contrast in the book Boundless Leadership with the flawed traditional approach to leadership. I guess maybe before we dive into Boundless Leadership, can you summarize the flawed conventional approach?
0: Sure. Uh, You know, I mean, I think that uh, our whole business uh, culture uh, has, you know, evolved over centuries, right? It goes back to Adam Smith or whoever. Um, and, And I don't think in the beginning uh, that that uh, the founders of modern economics or modern, uh, you know, entrepreneurial thinking had any idea how powerful businesses would become. And, uh, and, you know, I think that one of the things that's happened over the last century is that businesses have become the dominant force on the planet. And meanwhile, the way the way uh, uh, business leaders are conventionally trained, and again, I emphasize the word leaders, they're not in the sense we're using it, but in the in the conventional sense is as being sort of the one person who's gonna uh, whip everybody else into shape or make it all happen and get all the credit and take all the responsibility, but also get all the credit and 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 the rewards. Um, And this sort of Hyper individual understanding um, that businesses uh, really needed these one except one exceptional leader, um, and you know not uh, another key aspect really of how how different uh, our approaches or how is, is that you know. The understanding is that leaders really brought a certain kind of confidence, perhaps a panache, a, you know, drive. Okay, um, but but mainly sort of knowledge and skills. That 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 it wasn't. It's it's almost like a technocratic notion of what leadership is. You understand how economics work. You understand how markets work, and so on. Um, so over the years, as leadership has evolved, it's mainly been by building in like new modules of knowledge and skill you know, like applying the same like the same basic way of being, which is who I am really doesn't matter. What matters is what I know and how I can you know, make, make things happen or make other people do things. And that notion of the, uh, of the, the leader as a kind of, um, you know, highly trained technocratic or skilled executive um, really, you know, doesn't fly anymore. Uh, first, because, as I said, Uh, You know, businesses have so much more impact over our lives and our way of being than ever before. And so they're really having huge impacts that are ethical in in nature, uh, that have, uh, you know, uh, potential sort of impacts on our state of consciousness, our health and well-being. They're not just producing widgets, right? They're really, in a way, producing our whole way of life. And so, if you're not, if you don't have the understanding of, you know, uh, the whole breadth of, you know, what is important in choosing a direction, right, for yourself and for others, what is important in moving things in a particular direction, if you don't get access to, um, you know, an understanding of, you know, what well-being is, right, what's real health and well-being, what's sustainable way of living as a human. Uh, you know what kinds of uh, in- interface or interaction with uh, our customers or or other the larger the global networks that we're engaged with or larger society. What is this, what's the social impact of what we're doing? If you don't have the basic training for that, you're really not you know prepared to to. And you, as you can see, many of our most powerful CEOs. Uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg or, or uh, Jeff Bezos or whatever, uh, you know, boys with toys. You know, they have superpower at their disposal, but they have no training to warrant uh, the level of responsibility and impact that they have. Uh, and of course, it's not good for them either because you know, uh, it's I'm sure enormous amount of stress. Uh, and, uh, and alienating uh, people in those leadership positions from others. So, so that's part of, part of the, the, you know, the whole new approach is that we're not having this one-leader, top-down reptilian organization. One of my colleagues, uh, Stephen Porges, is a, a scientist, a researcher of the autonomic nervous system, and he talks about what happened when we became mammals. And, and one of the things that happened is that our whole brainstem Uh, Changed. It grew a new module, sort of, a new module that allows us to stay connected even under enormous stress. Um, And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we also default to the reptilian way of being where we're not really connected to others and we're not really aware of our interconnection or impact. Um, And that's a, a mode that I also call the survival mode. That is extremely stress prone. We're sort of stress magnets in that mode, and then in addition, uh, it's a mode that alienates us from others because we're losing our mammal capacity to stay coordinated with others. So, uh, you know, reptilian or dinosauric leadership is leadership where, you know, uh, you know stress is the fuel rather than something we want to metabolize and transform and where it's a kind of top-down model where one person is sort of you know, coercing or, or driving everybody to, to move in the, in, in, in the same direction. Um, and of course, you can see how antiquated that is in terms of you know, our interdependent uh, workplace, life world, markets, everything is so interdependent. And the, and the main tool that we have for this as humans, the capacity that at all, all levels of our brain to live, work, process information, create together with others in a creative, in an open, creative loop—that's shut down. When we use stress as a method, we're cutting ourselves off from our capacity to connect with others, and hence we're cutting ourselves off from the main source of wealth and productivity, as well. Not to mention the main source of fun, meaning, purpose. Right? We're just cutting it right off. Um, so. Um, you know, there's that there's understanding that, you know, if we, you know, think of the leader as like a military leader, which is one of the, you know, sort of prototypes of, of uh, you know, the old model of leadership, we're really not using the right neurobiological tools for the job. Um, and we're, we're not only putting stress on that one person who gets identified or that small group of people that rise to the top, but we're actually really on, you know, uh, in, ensuring that everyone else is disengaged, maybe feeling frightened or stressed or, or burnt out, um, and that we're not certainly not tapping their full potential. Not only are we tap, not tapping everybody's full well-being, we're certainly not tapping their potential. So the main uh, sort of focus that you know, one very simple way of thinking about this is that in old, the old style of leadership, the, the human being doesn't matter. Your human qualities and your human way of being doesn't really matter. It's like you just have to know things and be able to do things. Um, but our ability to connect with others is a fundamental dimension of our humanity. And if we don't have that, then we really can't be effective leaders in, in the, our, our hyper-connected age. Um, And so the reality is my leadership, as opposed to the traditional model is really helping us shift our fundamental way of being as humans who are leading ourselves and others in the world. Um, And it's that focus on our human potential or capacity that makes this uh, such a radically new approach.
1: A lot of threads for me to pull on there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Boys with toys and the process of growing up and becoming an adult leads me to think about the importance that you put on the inner conditions and the inner work. Uh, You have a few sentences towards the beginning of the book where you refer to boundless leadership as not predicated upon more skills or better command of business principles, which is what you were saying but rather upon an unrelenting pursuit of optimizing the inner conditions, the way of being underlying our thoughts, feelings, and actions. And then another thread, which resonates with another sentence uh, shortly thereafter that, you know, as boundless leaders, we want to nurture people to be their best through engagement and inspiration rather than through compliance and fear. And you mentioned the framing of old way of doing things was how do we make people do things? And you just really can't make people do things uh, unless you want to create an environment, as you said, of of fear and insecurity and uh, and so many other dysfunctional ways of being together. And you know, as we I think now shift to the inner conditions and the inner work, uh, so much then follows. Uh, but I think one key word concept practice that maybe we need to get a definition out of the way first is mindfulness. And I love that you call out that the current popular definitions of mindfulness, I can only speak to here in in North America that that I'm familiar with in terms of uh, the popular version of um, the definition of mindfulness. Not to say that I'm not familiar with a variety of texts that come way before the popular version of uh, that definition. Uh, you say, amounts to less than 5% of the traditional ancient methodology that modern science is proving to be so effective for retraining the human mind-brain for flourishing, and that the actual practice of mindfulness is much more ambitious and complex. So how do you define mindfulness? Great question,
0: Derek. So
1: um,
0: yeah, mindfulness, you know, the traditional understanding is that it is about, you know, with the, so let's just say with a small m, mindfulness as a uh you know, moment to moment capacity is about remembering or being aware of what y- you're, you're trying to focus on. Basically, it's about sort of just being self-aware, right? We, we relate this in, in the boundless leadership program to developing the capacity for self-awareness. So I know where my mind is. That's what mindfulness, I know what it's doing right now. um You know, it, it part of that is the assumption that if I get distracted from what I'm doing, I remember what I was trying to do and I come back to it. So that's why the word mindfulness, smirti or sati in the, in the ancient languages uh, literally is the same word that's used for memory or recollection. Um, now, my, as a practice, though, the word that's used to describe the whole practice in which mindfulness is embedded as a technique or, or uh, training is vipassana, which means insight, and so where you know uh, the con- modern sort of mindfulness revolution or make mindfulness, as one of my students uh, likes to say, uh, understanding uh, a popularized, diluted understanding of mindfulness, where that comes in is it's sort of basic, you know, paying attention in the present moment, right? So just being able to consciously attend. Intentionally noticing, being self-aware, whatever your mind or body or whatever is is doing—that's uh, the definition. Like the power of now, for example, as we uh, as it become another sort of buzzword that's out there. But the actual and, and that's seen as kind of like it. If you're in the present moment, then you're mindful. And the reality is, of course, what happens if you're in the present moment and it's awful? And you're miserable, or you're really not functioning well at all. Right. And what happens if you have a whole string of those present moments, one after another, or they even get worse? The purpose of mindfulness is, is much more ambitious. It's to really be able to get the data about, right? So we want the we want fresh, direct, clean data about where I'm where my mind and body or experience or life are right now. But then we want to we want to have the capacity to work creatively with that. And that's why the word Vipassana comes in, which is the traditional, which is a a Pali and Sanskrit word for insight. So the idea is that really, the traditional way of thinking about mindfulness is that it's really a training of your attention that empowers you to consciously learn or relearn your way of being and living, right? So it's about learning and learning, both in the context of seeing and noticing more, like wisdom or insight, and also learning in the context of being more caring or concerned or engaged, uh, and so that's in the context of kindness and compassion. Both of those ways of learning how to lead yourself, basically, right to know where you are and know where you want to head, um, are essential to to uh, the traditional, the full understanding of mindfulness, which has a number of dimensions that we go over in, 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 in Mm -hmm. leadership. I mean, another, uh, sort of another more, a bigger reply to your question is that from the standpoint of the tradition that gave us mindfulness, mindfulness, and the whole psych, even this psychology I'm describing, this whole meditative practice of being able to steer your own ship, sort of correct the course of your life is only one, of the of the many technologies that are available right so there's what i call the other two waves which have to do with compassion right learning how to re to, to take a kind of more creative role in your relationships with others in the world and then embodiment learning how to work with your own nervous system at the most at the most primal gut visceral level and fundamentally rewire your 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 uh, mind body state. So so mindfulness it, it, as presently taught is a small fraction of even the the methodology of mindfulness in the in the Indic tradition. And then we have these other two huge methodologies
1: that are even more uh, complex and powerful. Yeah, we're going to lead into learning and compassion next. I wonder if it's just briefly important here to note your background in terms of contemplative practice particularly your phd I, I believe was in buddhism yeah well because an appreciation for this vast body of work and practice is incredibly difficult to come by and it's so easy as i think we'll get into as we get explore negativity bias and shame avoidance and embodied stress energy it's really easy to kind of default to a non-nuanced point of view because that's what's easier to do the harder work is to get to the place where you're at in order to make some of these statements so i think it's really important if, if there's anything you want to say about your experience your past in terms of of your understanding of these contemplative practices
0: sure i mean i'll say something even in a way a larger sort of a confession about me right so that part of part of the way i i i i got into this unusual intersection of fields right this this new field that didn't exist for you know when i when i started uh, was watching my dad, who was a, a physician, burn out uh, over over the course of his very otherwise very rewarding profession. And what I realized is that he was not really, he didn't have the tools to really guide uh, his own what way of working, living, and, and it really cost them. And, uh, you know, at, at the same time, uh, I, I had a, in my own household double blind experiment, my mom was a much more, uh, retained some of her traditional upbringing, uh, in, in spirituality and stayed and much more related and close to it and practiced and actually kind of grew more secure, more alive, more and flourished more over the years. So I, From from a very young age, I realized that if I was going to go into healthcare, mental health, well being, I really needed to bring in these something from the contemplative traditions of the world that we've jettisoned basically over the last centuries. So um, so I did train in uh, in you know medicine and psychiatry, um, but as early as college, I ran into uh, a, a. the whole Buddhist and or Indic uh, contemplative philosophy, psychology, and, and methodology, which was just blew my mind, right? Because it, it was right there. You know, it, unlike a lot of Western religious or, or contemplative practices, it's, it, you know, the Indic tradition is uh, presented in a very, is open to science, is open to psychology, it's It's very um, it's it's uh, you know set up as a methodology that's that, that's kind of neutral that's that's uh, uh, tradition neutral or neutral to your worldview. So it's something that you know anyone can use. Um, and so that really gave me a sense of how I would conceivably how I would bridge where you know medicine, neuroscience, neuropsychology, and all of these things were going. And the contemplative world, which otherwise would be quite a stretch, and it wasn't really for. For for, you know, I mean, uh, I started out my studies in this, and I wanted, you know, I I have to date myself, I guess, in the seventies, and and did my first trips to India in the seventies. But you know, this was not a common popular interest. You know, uh, I met John kabat and and Herb Benson worked in his lab in Herb's lab and. Um, but still there wasn't really until the nineties, this, this whole thing was kind of just weird. And so, uh, you know, I think what happened, uh, around the time when some of the first hardcore research on the, on the benefits of mindfulness, uh, came along is that it lined up with what we were learning in neuroscience, which is that, uh, you know, in fact, the brain wasn't fixed and hardwired that it was plastic and trainable and so these two discoveries came together to sort of break open the mindfulness revolution that um, we had methods of training the mind that were that could be secular that could be tradition neutral that anyone could use um had health impacts and so on and that we could also use them they were very powerful tools to transform the way our minds and bodies and brains work so, I, so at that point, I, I, I wanted to continue studying the, the ancient Indic tradition to be able to really responsibly and reliably get, first of all, get as much of the wealth as possible, but also really be able to frame it in a way that wasn't leaving out anything essential, right? And that's part of even, I know I've had this conversation with John kabat who, who regrets in, in a lot of ways, not including other elements into his original mindfulness-based stress reduction, Mm. but that we're we're sort of making up for that now. Um, So I did end up coming back to study with Bob Thurman, the same professor I've met in college uh, at Columbia and, and do a PhD in Buddhist psychology and, and, you know, how it related to their understanding of, you know, the nervous system, the, the transformability of the mind and, and uh, you know, I think it's an extremely rich. I'm I'm so glad I did that because um, it really allowed me to go deeper, but also, uh, you know, gave the world time in a way to to get more interested. (laughs) So that by the time I started uh, doing my clinic, my practical applications, there was a hunger for this kind of stuff. And and as I said, I think, uh, you know, it may be that mindfulness with a small m. The you know is is you know not as hot as it was, and that people are shifting focus. But there's so much that's yet to be discovered. Uh, and the fact is, just actually uh, applying these practices, these powerful mind training practices, uh, responsibly and and you know with maximal impact, right? That's
1: part of what we're going for in Mountain's leadership. Nice. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. I hope to spend these next 30 minutes talking about topics that are typically uncomfortable to talk about in the work environment and typically not thought of as concepts that um, are critical to integrate into the work environment. And so much that I've seen in the past, I started glow back in 2008 and I've made plenty of mistakes over the years. And we're at a point now where uh, I can honestly say we're learning from those mistakes and making meaningful change. And there are so many (laughs) entry points into this next part of this conversation that I could choose, but you mentioned learning and compassion. And I think the three main blocks, so you talk about three, strategic pivots, going from critical mind to open mind, careful heart to caring heart, guarded energy and stance to fluid energy and stance, and that those pivots each have certain blocks. Uh, I don't think respectively, I think you can have those blocks across all three, and those being negativity, bias, shame avoidance, and embodied stress energy. And I don't think you can accomplish those pivots and establish a learning environment if you're not also creating a safe environment where those three main blocks are okay to work with. So I wonder if we could just talk about compassion for a moment, because it's, it's such a misunderstood term. I, I think you mentioned that too, in the book. And, you know, one of the things when we, when our team was at the height of its toxicity, people would walk into our office and they'd say, God, it's so nice here. Everyone's so nice. And it wasn't until years of, of, work and working through that that i came to realize that a nice culture is in fact that can in fact be just as toxic as an overtly not nice culture for a variety of reasons and you know i think you know part of what i love about your framing of compassion is that you mention that compassion often figures in our modern worldview as a moralistic injunction or a self-indulgent sentiment and that The way you're talking about it is in direct opposition to this flawed leadership approach. And so I'm just wondering why, like what is compassion and why is it so hard to lead with compassion? Uh, You also talk about authentic and inauthentic compassion. I just don't wanna spend the rest of the 30 minutes on this particular word. Um, I wonder if there's a shorter version of that.
0: Well, great, I mean, uh, I think you're absolutely right that we need, that all of this capacity, accessing our mammalian capacity, our capacity to connect with others creatively and and authentically and and so on requires a sense of safety, and and safety is not something uh, one human being can experience alone. Um, again, the same researcher that I mentioned, Stephen Borges, says absence of danger is not enough for a mammal to feel safe. Why? Because our lives really depend on our relationships with others. Right? You know, and so. What we need in order to really feel safe, mind, body, neurologically, is cues of safety and connection, Uh, messages, explicit, intentional messages that were recognized as valuable, you know, uh, worthwhile humans treated with respect and care, um, And and when you think of when you listen to that kind of description, it doesn't sound like any corporation that you know that we're used to, right? (laughs) Um, And it's not an accident, actually. Uh, You know, part of the way our our corporate culture evolved, or our whole business uh, culture evolved, was with a kind of misguided neo Darwinism, a misguided understanding that Darwin believed that somehow the tougher the the animal that 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 uh, survival was about individual uh, animals fighting with each other and the toughest one will win and i think there is that uh, kind of um, ethos built into our sense of what a good leader is like really you know hard-nosed aggressive maybe even like greed is good right this somebody driven by these powerful engines But what we really have learned over the last 50 years is that it's all wrong, that that whole basic framework. And it it wasn't even what Darwin believed. It wasn't even what Adam Smith believed, frankly, right? Uh, But All of them were really very aware of the importance of the social dimension of human life as a foundation and the social dimension of animal life as a foundation for our competence and our survivability, right? certainly a foundation for our thriving. So the understanding is that whatever compassion is, however we define it, uh, it isn't a luxury. It isn't about being nice. If we want to unlock the full potential that we have as the most complex, the most amazing animals ever, right? We need to feel safely connected to others. And that requires a a spirit, mood, energy uh, we call compassion. And what is that? It's a sense that, your happiness and my happiness are linked that your suffering and my suffering are linked and and that we it's completely opposite the culture that I described of traditional leadership where it's the exceptional individual who gets the prize and everyone else is just supporting caste um, and, and in fact actually we know we know now that, that 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 that's not a prize right we know that 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 individual, Uh, you know, wealth, success, and all of these things are not what make people happy or well, uh, that it's connection to others. And so really what we're talking about is acknowledging what decades of science has shown us. And and the good news being that we can cultivate what we call wise compassion or authentic compassion. That is, we can cultivate the capacity to connect with others uh, in a way that works in a way that's not sentimental. That's not about, you know, being nice. Um, and it doesn't make us suffer either that actually enriches. It's a win-win. It enriches, uh, uh, everyone, um, because it brings the best out in all of us.
1: Okay. So as we're cultivating the capacity for meaningful connection through wise compassion, and then looping back to the three pivots I mentioned earlier, you write, those three pivots all depend on one shift. That is a shift from a stress-driven way of being to a thriving way of being. Can you speak to that shift in terms of both negativity bias and the traumatized sense of self?
0: So so one overall way to think about uh, the shift from the conventional business as usual, leadership as usual, to the kind of leadership that we're calling boundless, is that leadership as usual is traditionally seen as very intimately tied to stress and assumptions about stress, that somehow stress is necessary, that it's good, that it, it drives us to, to excellence and to perform well, and that it's not something we can actually get rid of. Um, and actually, you know, this is one of the beautiful things about modern a neuroscience, positive psychology and a whole trend a whole new way of understanding human nature is that we're understanding that you know stress is just one mode of the human nervous system um, and that we're actually able, capable of, th- of of pivoting or shifting to a whole different mode that's more about thriving with others and co-creating uh, you know a, 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 a you know a safe and, and creative and constructive environment. So, you know, because stress operates at all different levels of our mind and body, uh, you know, we have stress uh, reactive thinking, which is tinged with negativity. Worst case, we call, we call that negativity bias. That's the sort of uh, bias that we bring to, uh, uh, to our thinking habits when we're feeling stressed. Emotional reactivity... Uh, is tied to what we call the traumatized sense of self that is a sense of not being safely connected to others which we all is, is a sort of uh, painful uh, uh, truth and often too much of a secret for all of us um, and then our guarded stance our fight flight faint freeze kind of way of living in our body when we're cook when we're sort of running on on the dirty fuel of stress right Um all of those three levels of stress, of the stress way of being, are, you know, you know, baked in or tied into the traditional leadership model and are seen as unavoidable. But modern research has lined up with ancient contemplative traditions to say, hey, no, 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 that, that's just that's just the downside. That's the bad side. And we can actually shift. If we practice, we can actually shift that survival mode that locks us into the stress way of being, and we can learn to cultivate resilience or the ability to bounce back at all these different levels from stress reactive or neg- negative thinking to optimistic, realistic assessment, open-mindedness, uh, which is the heart of that. We can learn how to heal and, and uh, you know, uh, unlock our, our traumatized sense of self so that we can let go of the fears of isolation or shame or or exclusion that keep us all locked down and alienated. And we can shift into uh, uh, a sense of deep authentic connection to others that frees us emotionally. Um, and then we can also shift at the level of body stress, All right, So we can shift at the level of stress at the mind, heart, and body, And and our practices in boundless leadership train the disciplines, the capacities to do those resilient shifts uh, over and over again until we really fundamentally start adapting to living in a full thriving mode. Um, So, you know, those are uh, basically that's – the, the overall logic of the system from a sort of scientific psychology standpoint is we now know we don't need that the stress is not the clean energy. It's not the most, it's not the way to get the most, uh, you know, productivity or creativity or, or certainly not fun or health out of us. And that we have this whole other mode that we're not tapping because we as individuals, our institutions, and our societies have been locked into stress and baked into stress for
1: centuries. Right. Absolutely. When I think of myself and the ways the dirty fuel of stress that you mentioned uh, can manifest in myself, when I'm not aware of it, it tends to be in the form of, say, perfectionism, busyness, unnecessary intensity, and you know, other unhelpful ways. And I try to now see those moments as opportunities to reflect on and be more receptive to what I'm feeling and and why, and to honestly address my pain points or my uh, pain avoidance tactics. That's, you know, much easier said than done and the contemplative practices like those in your book, which support self-awareness helps with that. Towards the end of the book, you also provide a method of locating yourself as to whether at the level of body, heart, mind, uh, where am I at the moment on, on a particular issue? And you then provide the, the practices, as you mentioned, to, to move you know, through those particular pivots.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the unique things about our our methodology and bounds leadership um, is is it, in a way it could never it couldn't have happened it wouldn't have been possible uh, in in you know 10 years ago or 20 years ago, let alone a century ago, um, because what we really do is we're able to sort of line up the science very clearly and at the same time tap into this very broad uh, range of co- contemplative practices, mind-body training practices that allow us to do these shifts, to break the shift down into very incremental steps, right? So to make it accessible. So part of the reason why we really believe boundless leadership is for everybody is that we're able to take the, the new way of being that we're describing Right, with the traits that we're trying to cultivate, the traits of self-awareness that lead to clarity, the trait of uh, you know authentic engagement that comes from a heart that's in a place of compassion and connection, um, and the trait of natural flow or embodied flow that comes from working with our autonomic nervous system and our bodies. Uh, these traits we can then break down into states that we cultivate uh on a a day-to-day regular basis until they get installed, right? States practice over time, altered states or new states of being eventually get wired into new traits of being. And the states themselves, we can further break down into smaller incremental steps, that is specific qualities that support those states, right? So, for example, clarity we can support with presence of mind, uh, we can support it with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, balance and so on and so forth, with the unbiased awareness, and then specific practices that train those qualities. So we have a system where we're able to break this whole big shift into very small incremental practices. And, and what you're alluding to, Derek, is once we have that map laid out, where we can sort of notice where we're most stuck, Where's the biggest pain point? Is it my, ne- my negative thinking? Is it my traumatic sense of myself as inadequate or reactive all the time? Uh, is it a bodily kind of guarding and stress? We identify what domain our worst stresses are, and then we can focus on a specific set of practices that build qualities that counteract, that help us bounce back out of those stress modes and eventually get installed as a whole new way of being.
1: And I appreciate how you go to some pretty granular level, places that you typically don't go to in a work environment. So one of the the subtitle to your chapter on resilience is transforming our inner demons. And, you know, day to day, I'm I'm sure people see it all the time with their coworkers, whether it be with a, uh, a manager working with their direct report or a direct report seeing it in their manager, like seeing in real time that person working with or navigating inner demons that the other party feels it and sees it. For example, the experience of shame, insecurity, inadequacy, feeling disconnected from others or from ourselves or some other aspect of ourselves that we'd rather not feel in that moment or reveal to others, or maybe in the moment of being triggered, we may be self-aware enough to notice these emotions within ourselves. And depending on the relationship dynamic and the power dynamic or whether or not it's a group setting, it takes, uh, Certain amount of metacognition to navigate all of that well in the moment to determine you know what amount of disclosure or what ways of expressing that disclosure is appropriate and, and I have a question here that I, might take me a minute to get to I wonder if we can explore for a moment the boundary between what is appropriate for the coaching setting in the work environment and what is better left for the licensed therapeutic setting and part of why i ask is the relationship i have with our co-ceo is one where we we can with without any risk or harm we can discuss our childhood trauma fears our insecurities particularly as we're weighing the pros and cons of a decision or coaching each other on either a future or past scenario but the structure and norms of our relationship have been in development over the past 10 years, with the, the last few years in particular, with both of us working with the same coach. And I suspect that configuration is somewhat rare. Uh, and we, we often wonder, once we, we're done with a, or, or we're, on their, uh, we're through a, a session or a moment like that, we wonder, God, can you imagine how wonderful and powerful it would be if we could scale what we have together? So i wonder if you could speak to that and just the the traumatic self-state and the wounded child, which you bring up in in your book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think that the, you know, the heart is the heart of the matter, right? Uh, I mean, because why, because we're such social animals, the thing that matters most to us is our connection to other people. And while we don't talk about that, perhaps in the workplace, we don't, Certainly, don't talk about when it doesn't go well, uh, except we go home or we go to our therapist or our coach. Um, but the reality is that that's what's really making—it's the biggest driver of stress or 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 wellness or well-being and, and creativity—is whether we feel safely connected to others. So, we're trying to bring this into some kind of uh, accessible, usable business discourse. Right? The whole idea of boundless leadership, in a way, is giving us a language and a way of working with the inner domain of our inside job of leading ourselves and others. Um, and, and the key there is to just simply accept uh, something that I think is not really very well known or accepted, that feelings of shame and inadequacy and insecurity and rejection are universal, are common, Uh, human uh, uh, feelings and are usually the single biggest uh, limiting factor in our capacity to show up. Um, And so the fact that we can't talk to our coworkers about this or our reports or bosses or whatever, that we don't have a language for it, that it's taboo, um, you know, that it might show weakness or vulnerability, all of this is really completely counterproductive. And what you're describing in your in, in your relationship with your co your your uh, co director, is the direction we need to head in, where everyone is ha, it has a a shame you know a de shaming, non blaming, just general human understanding that this is the way a human heart works, and so yeah, part of that is that we, uh, you know, because our main drivers as mammals. From infancy is to connect with other mammals. We know that that's more important to us than than survival. It's more important than food is connection uh, from from get from, from day one, from the get-go. Uh, and also we know that in terms of motivating behavior, shame is fear of shame is worse than fear of death. Right? So these are many you know, different ways of looking at the reality that when we feel uh, rejected, disconnected, uh, unlovable, unseen, uh, it wound, it's very wounding, not just on a sensitive, you know, emotional level. It, it fundamentally, uh, blocks our capacity to access our, our whole mammal self, our full resources, you know, or to be resilient. So that's why I'm shedding light on, on, on that. Those moments are parts of our, history of our emotional history or emotional programming where we came close to shame or feelings of rejection is essential to really working out the kinks and getting through. And that's usually something that only happens in deep psychotherapy, but it's something that that for most of us can happen in other contexts. With the right language and methodology, it can happen in coaching. It, and maybe you would also want to have you know, maybe you don't want to tell your coach exactly everything if they're working for your company. I don't know. But, I mean, uh, it, you know, ideally, uh, you would, you know, we would be able to de- use the language of balanced leadership to help, uh, you know, bring uh, more of this sort of a, a common human, no-nonsense and non-blamey, non-shamey acceptance of, Okay, okay, this is a wounded place, where it's really hard for me and and you know here's how maybe we can work through this what about for you um and you know i think that if we can really accept that we need to face these wounds we need to be able to to share them and find the skills to work through them in order to get our full capacity we'll have accepted uh you know a, a, a huge uh shift in in the capacity to access our a sense of well-being and connection. I mean, if we can learn to do this in real time, to know when we're feeling shamed and threatened and disconnected, and to either ourselves through self-compassion, work that kink out, or engage somebody else we trust to help us out of it, then we're right back to our full selves. Mm-hmm. And we haven't wasted hours, days, months, or years locked up in a fear that we're not good enough or that, nope, I'm not safe in this space or in this relationship.
1: Right. I've seen work relationships be so much more effective and healthy when in real time, in safe community and in situation and context appropriate ways, the wounding is faced. I've also seen how badly it can go when the wounding isn't faced or is faced without some tools that help set us up for success. Uh, you know, I've seen that both in myself right. and in others, and I love how you put it, that this is a wounded place where it's really hard for me. And maybe here's how we can work through it. How does that work for you? Adding in the asking permission component, uh, I think how much time and energy is wasted by not facing the wounds or in not knowing there are even wounds to be faced, all of which likely is adversely affecting our physiology, our relationships at home, disrupting our sleep, likely leading to certain unhealthy numbing behaviors, just a cascade of dysfunction, and then multiply that across whole economies
0: and you multiply it you multiply it by the social contagion factor right this is what psychologists call the way we subliminally impact each other under the radar your boss is in a bad mood because he he you know his his kid or his wife were upset with him uh, or with her whoever you know um and and then you pick up on it everybody in the room picks up on it everybody in the room is in lockdown, fear-based, I better not. I I gotta look out. I can't trust. And we've just lost the potential that we need to to solve problems, be creative, let alone enjoy and be well. So and it happens all the time. All it's the time. so it's such a bread and butter problem in in our uh, in our everyday lives. And what we now know is that this is really treatable and preventable. It's like we can train ourselves out of this if we have this kind of the kind of uh, map and tools that Boundless leadership offers.
1: I love that. I just want to say that I in no way consider myself uh, beyond or exempt any of this. I encounter these uh, moments, feelings, sensations, emotions daily, and uh, that's that's my practice. And
0: yeah, as do I, because this is just part of being human. The question is. Do we also have the awareness and the skills to work through it as, as efficiently, as effectively as possible? And our society has seen to it that we don't, right? We, shame is something we all assume, only I feel, more or less. Uh, and we're, we're, we, it's like a hot potato we never talk about. We don't get the language, not to mention all the other emotions that we should be talking about, like hurt, anger, and, and, you know, you know, fear and, and clinging and so on. So this is key. And and I would just also add that, you know, I've emphasized the inside job in terms of learning how to shift out of the, the survival mode or stress mode that limits our capacity and into the well-being uh, engaged mode, the the mammal mode that, that that's allows us to thrive. Um, but we're not just talking about, this doesn't just impact our internal state of consciousness. It also translates in a different way of leading, a different way of doing business, right? And, and there are business applications like real world, you know, how do I deal with this business problem? How do I deal with this difficult interaction in, in my workplace? How do I deal with the energy drain or the burnout or whatever? Uh, And so we do, you know, uh, we do also, as part of the battle station program, teach applications that, that allow that speed, the translation of this new way of being into a a new way of engaging in the workplace with others in the workplace.
1: I agree completely. So as we wind down and come to the end of our conversation, I want to try to squeeze in the experience of assuming and, um, either being in nuance or shirking nuance. Uh, assumptions is quite important to me and personal to us as a company. Uh, verifying stories and assumptions is one of the key behaviors underneath our core value of practice curiosity. And you say throughout your book, uh, it's one of the most pernicious things, You know, our deep-seated need to focus on validating our thinking, positive or negative, rather than just being open to discovering something new as well as jumping to preconceived judgments of others without all the data the misperceiving is one of the most toxic things that that we can do in a, a you know a business context or any interpersonal relationship and then in terms of nuance because i think the two are somewhat related you know i found that a reluctance to stay in that uncomfortable gray area of nuance can lead to so many organizational and interpersonal dysfunctions and you write that staying in clarity requires us to expose and remove even the insidious bias that subtle nuances don't matter. And I know this leads to a broader discussion around negativity bias and bias in general you know, to no. um, to, you know, to, to other groups. And so uh, you, you talk also in detail in terms of how our nervous systems are evolved in part to do this as a contrast enhancer and that it actually neurologically speaking isn't possible for us to not have biases. So can you speak to how agility, how a team agility and team creativity are compromised in work cultures where there's a reduced capacity for nuance, also coupled with the fact that we are wired to make assumptions or predictions as we move through the world?
0: Yeah. So the way our nervous systems evolved to help us survive, thrive, to protect us is there's two aspects that are a real problem for, <laughs> for uh, the, the full uh, use of our intelligence, so or accurate perception. So one is the tendency to exa- to exaggerate or to to confuse an experience or something that I uh, feel is true or happening with reality. So there's a uh, natural part of our self protective wiring is to think if I thought I saw a tiger over there, I saw a tiger. And you can see why that would be useful if it really turned out to be a tiger, right? So uh, this, what we call it the habit of reification, the habit of just thinking our experiences are reality and not being able to tell the difference between the two. And then we have the other part of it, which is this polarizing habit. And the polarizing habit is designed to really exaggerate uh, the, you know the, the distinction between things to, to sort of po- to categorize everything in terms of whether it's gonna it, it, it's gonna save us or whether it's gonna kill us, right? Because if we're in survival mode, that's all we that's I'm not gonna worry about the nuances. I'm, I just want to survive, right? So so our stress mind has highly exaggerates these two capacities. Both when we're in stress. We don't think very flexibly. We're not very open. We're rigid, stereotypical. We become dinosaurs, right? And we have this polarizing vision where I'm only interested in what's going to kill me or what's going to save me. Um, And so, you know, essentially this, uh, you know, biases come from or assumptions come from the reifying habit, right? They come from this habit of exaggerating, of turning up, an experience into a reality, right? That's the basic habit limiting our intelligence, our capacity to use our, our curiosity and learn new things. Um, and then the other one, the loss of nuance, comes from the polarizing, right? Because uh, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't have the uh, tolerance, the sense of safety to just open my mind and really, you uh, take in the, the particularities the, the unique textures of this moment with all its ambiguities and interrelationships. So these are both uh, mental habits that are not good for complexity. They're not good for agility they're the opposite. like so everything we need to function more effectively in our present day this 24/7 global economy, uh, you know that everything's changing all the time everything's interconnected we need agility we need uh, you know flexibility, And those capacities go out the door when we feel stressed. So there's another reason why we just can't afford it anymore. We can't afford to run our nervous systems on stress energy. It's just crippling. It completely handicaps the capacities that we really need. And that's why we need this whole new approach because it's not so easy to to undo, you know, hundreds of millions of years of evolution. We can do it, but it doesn't just, ha- you know, it's not like this, you know snapping your fingers.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does at times seem Herculean. You mentioned the need for agility and flexibility, and you you do um, use the word heroism at one point in the book, and I love the way you phrase it in terms of being an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation. And that we don't have to be special to inspire. We have to be in a special place within our nervous system, and that ultimately it's a way of leading without needing to impress or intimidate. And I just want to say, as a side note, that you know I've seen some of the most courageous acts of heroism via team members sitting in that fire of that uncomfortable vulnerability, instead of in that stress charged energy of shame, anger, and fear. And that's my hat goes off to anyone, anywhere, doing that. It's Beautiful to watch.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to link it back to a point you, you mentioned r- very early, Derek, uh, this is not something. It's something that's very hard for us as human beings to do in isolation. Um, so, while it's important that each person develop the skills of, of uh, you know, balanced leadership or this inner transformation, it's also important that the you know whole businesses and the culture at large. Uh, and, and a team, for example, be, be really ready to support this, right? Because it, it isn't just, it, you know, I mean, of course, if you're really strong, you can stay open while other people are closed. But you need to be very, very highly trained and capable in that. And that, that can be, like, you can be the leader in the room at that moment. Um, but, of course, it's always easier when we're getting helping hands and we're all tuning into the same channel and, uh, you know, helping each other stay uh, more open and and you know n- nuanced and curious and rather than reactive and and closed
1: absolutely and as we're all moving to more flat organizations, uh, there still is always some amount of hierarchy and if it uh, isn't starting at the proverbial top, it definitely will be much harder for it to um, spread out throughout the rest of the organization. I imagine the incredible nuance and depth of your book and its supporting material would benefit tremendously from a program. And you have a program launching in February. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. So all of the principles that we, and practices that we pack into boundless leadership, we unpack in the, in the boundless leadership program. And it's a six month program on totally online with a very, very extensive uh, learning site that has, you know, I think around 70 videos and lots of readings and, um, and essentially the most important piece in, in in terms of the, in the very vein that we were just discussing is creating a community for learning and transformation, which you're not going to find anywhere. This is an unusual community of people that are ready to do this kind of inner transformation. And, and help support us in the inner work that's necessary, the inner learning, the deep learning that's necessary to change. So Eleazar and I love doing this work of boundless leadership, and, and, and you know the program really allows us to take people over this six-month journey um, and really uh, guide them through all the steps so that they can then develop their own sort of leadership plan, their own balanced leadership plan when they leave and maybe you know, have that to continue to refine over the years. So it's a very powerful uh, experience that we love and we sort of welcome anyone who, who may be interested in taking this journey with us.
1: And where can people find that? What's the website? Anyone who wants to dive deeper on what you said earlier in terms of the reification, the predictions, the categorization that we do, I believe either a week or two prior to your episode, uh, we'll post our interview with Lisa, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, where she talks about emotions and, and how we're predictive. Oh, great. Predictive great. Organisms.
0: It's Nalanda Great.
1: We'll add that link to the show notes. Thank you, Dr. Lloyd. So this was so wonderful. And thank you for doing this work. And I appreciate the time with you. Thank
0: you, Derek. Loved uh, our conversation. And uh, thanks for what you're doing.
1: Thank you. Take care. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.